Hello, and welcome to this latest edition of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. Today's conversation is with Dr. Cho Mui Tun, the president of Parami University, Myanmar's first and only liberal arts and sciences university in Myanmar. Cho Mui Tun raised $5 million to make Parami a reality, almost entirely from donors within Myanmar. This is a masterclass in how to raise funding wherever you are and what it takes to turn your vision into reality, even when the odds are completely stacked against you. Welcome. Thank you. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much. Where are you today? I'm currently based in New York City. So how long have you been in New York? I've been here for almost two years. Uh, I came here in April 2021. Just after the coup? Just two months after the coup. And your family's back in Myanmar? Yeah, well, they they have always uh, been there. Um, You know, after the coup, I had to uh, figure out what I'm going to do next for Parmi and the safety of myself uh, and also my family to ensure that everyone is safe. Uh, I had to uh, uh, leave the country to make sure that Parmi has a future. Okay, that's a lot in the first 40 seconds of this conversation. So I want to rewind a little to give you some more context on Cho Moitun's situation. In April 2021, during the coup in Myanmar and soon after losing his father to COVID, Dr. Cho Moitun was denounced by the military government on national TV with a full 45 seconds dedicated just to him alongside Do Ong Sang Suu Kyi and many others. Imagine that for a moment, in one minute, having everyone and everything you care about being publicly threatened by the government of your nation and faced with arrest and the notorious insane prison on the outskirts of Yangon. So for his own safety, for the safety of his family and to preserve Parami University, Chomo Tun left his home, trekked through the jungle, was smuggled across borders and eventually gained asylum in the US where he is continuing his work in exile. Oh, and one more thing before we go back to the conversation. Following Cho Mutun's lead, we flit between using Myanmar and Burma throughout, using both names of the country interchangeably. And now, back to Cho Mutun. Tell us a bit more about Parami, about the idea, the vision, the ambition, the hope? You know, I've always understood and experienced the importance of liberal arts education in my life. Uh, When I was young, um, I went through a government uh, high school system, all of it in which road memorization is is the norm and uh, literal road memorization is the norm. So going through that, when I went to the U.S. to study there, experience firsthand what critical thinking is, uh, what student-centered learning is, and why my opinions matter in classrooms, uh, where my peers and my instructor looked for opinions from me as well as a peer. And I uh, that, that experience really shaped me to become who I am. And I believe that that kind of education is really important for the development of the country. So after I finished my PhD in 2014, I went back to Burma to start uh, a liberal arts college. And and so, you know, with that, uh, we have fundraising campaigns and all those stuff. 
that we did to elicit a public interest. Uh, we demonstrated it through a pilot school called Parmi Institute, a postgraduate certificate program school in Burma, in Yangon. Uh, that was very successful. And then we launched a fundraising campaign in uh, 2020. And uh, with that mechanism, we raised nearly $5 million for the first phase of construction of the university. But, you know, the plan was to open a residential liberal arts university in 2022, but we couldn't start the construction in March 2021, just because, you know, we had the military go a month before, and that just all disrupted the plans. So you've had to flex what Parami University is and how it operates. Um, and, and I see from uh, sort of your LinkedIn feed that I'm seeing sort of adverts for, for these roles at Parami. So it seems like you've, you're, you're still growing and you're, you're, you've adopted a, a sort of online model for your programs? Yes, absolutely. Uh, currently, there are some institutions inside the country that are still offering in-person, but we believe that to maintain the academic integrity and academic freedom of the university, it is literally impossible, to be honest, to operate out of Burma at the moment. Uh, when the military regime uh, will restrict any kind of academic discussion that we can have in classrooms. There is going to be a lot of restriction in terms of what we can say, what we cannot say, what we can teach, what we cannot teach, what subjects we can teach and or not, uh, what faculty can say, all this um, really di dictatorial you know, machine is going to really kill us all. So we unless you're providing kind of like a management courses, business administration, you know, very non-political, even in those things. I don't, sometimes I don't even know how, you know, these schools can operate when you have to talk about, you know, inflation, uh, you know, uh, unemployment, you know, even in management or business schools, like you have to talk about it. But, you know, when it comes to Burma related these issues that you cannot talk about it, right? So, um, so we believe that it's it's literally impossible to operate inside Burma when our academic freedom, integrity, everything is going to be violated, right? So we what we decided to do was to incorporate Parami in Washington D.C. under the Washington D.C. government. So we operated, uh, we incorporated as as a private nonprofit uh, corporation licensed within the District of Columbia in Washington D.C. And and how are how are students accessing the work? Do you do you still have students across Burma? Yeah, uh, accessing the courses. Yes, absolutely. We use uh, state of the art uh, education technologies for students. Uh, we use the Canvas learning learning management system, Zoom, all of these things, so that, that they can have access to all the course materials. All the courses at Parami are still synchronous teaching, right? Uh, that's really important. And our class sizes are very small, only 16 students in each Zoom class and no more than that. So our students have a very intimate classroom dynamics, classroom discussion and interaction. And is, is engaging with Parami a risk for these students? It can be a risk for the students. Many of the students actually uh, study. Um, some of them are actually studying at the border. Many of them are still inside the country. However, we take our students' identity very seriously, and it's not something that 
you know, without the consent of students' permission to release any kind of information on Facebook, anything advertised, we don't do that. Only when the students are completely safe, uh, we do that. Okay. I, um, I just want to take you sort of back because I remember when we were in Nipito in when was that 2018, you told me a sort of story, you sort of uh, about your early education experience. And I know you've touched on it, but I just want to take you back. And because I remember this sort of the inspiration behind Parami as being really formative. Can you share that? Yeah, so I, I had some embarrassing stories uh, when I was young, growing up in my eighth grade or tenth grade. Actually, it was in in my eighth grade, but then all the way through to the tenth grade. We we don't we don't have uh, twelve years of formal education, right? In Burma, uh, even now we it's it's only eleven years of formal education, like some twisted version uh, that we st- we do in formal education in Burma, uh, but. Um, back then, we only had uh, 10 years of formal education. And um, in my eighth grade, uh, we kind of had to, you know, uh, memorize uh, these essays, right, uh, where uh, our teacher would uh, uh, force us to write down the es- these essays that she has written, she, re- she wrote down on the blackboards, and we're supposed to memorize and, you know, and, and one of the essays was a visit to my favorite place. And uh, she wrote it down, and but then she said last summer, she wrote down last summer, I went to Napoli or Pien And then I was like, oh, uh, it's very interesting why she was using, you know, the, I don't know if uh, if this is conjunction, but or, right? Um, or whether, it, or is the conjunction or not? I, don't know. I think it's conjunction. Uh, um, but <laughs> the, the grammar thing, so I don't remember anymore. But I was like, last summer, I must remember where I went. Uh, you know, I can't, I don't think that I can use or uh, because these are two places. And so I asked a question and I was like, why, why are you using or? And, and, and she said, you know, don't worry. Uh, don't worry about it. Just, just, just write it as I've written on the blackboard. And, and I, I was not satisfied with that answer, of course. So I asked again um, and then she said, or can be used in place of end uh, sometimes. And I got so confused because I've never heard or being you know, synonymously used as end. Um, so, so I asked again and by that time she got super mad. She asked me to come in at the front of the class. She, you know, pulled down my pants in front of the entire class and, you know, she caned me. Uh, on my uh, buttocks, uh, and that really humiliated me. Of course, uh, I was uh, uh, 14 years old, and I was so embarrassed, and uh, that silenced me for three years. Uh, I became a very quiet person. Uh, they typically call it a very obedient student, um, very quiet, non-questioning student for the next three years, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, right? And only when I went to college, then I realized the first time I felt liberated and my teachers asked me, what do you think? Uh, and I got confused. And, and that was, that was you, you, you got the scholarship to go to Bard College, right? Absolutely. I, I, I got a scholarship to go to Bard College for four years, uh, three years uh, in, at Bard and then one year in, at, at Oxford in England. So, yeah, that was the first time I, I, I got asked, 
what do you think, Jomo san? Uh, what's your opinion? And I, I would be like, why are you asking me? You're the teacher. You, you're supposed to tell me what I'm supposed to think. You know, that, that was kind of, um, that, was, that was very uncomfortable at first being asked what I thought, right? Growing up with, you know, what I'm supposed to think. So those formative years were really important for me, really, um, in shaping me who I am. And I remember, I remember you also saying that the systemic element of it, in that, sh- in that your teacher, you, you had a sense of understanding about your teacher not being equipped to do or think in a different way. So you sort of both trapped in that system. Yes. Yes. And looking back, you know, that, that shift from that experience in, in Burma and then moving to the US, it, it, you know, it must have been mind-blowing and completely transformative. Yes. And then after that experience, you went to Yale, you did your doctorate at Yale. Why, what motivated you and drove you to return to Myanmar? Yeah, thank you very much for that question. One thing that I like to highlight is about BARD here. And, it, uh, you know, this has a lot to do with BARD. BARD College, I would say, is one of the most daring colleges or universities in the United States, period. I, and if I might even say the, the, the most daring, actually, uh, you know, they go to um, very difficult to operate areas throughout the world, right? They're not afraid to go to these areas. Uh, many of the well-known, you know, very prestigious universities in the United States would go to what I would call safe havens, right? Safe havens, when they have complete kind of like, you know, approval, from uh, you know their, their their respective governments and you know like when they they have kind of like a, a lot of money you know given out by you know wealthy individuals or from those countries that's not how Bard operates. Bard would go to places where it is difficult to operate, right? Authoritarian regions, dictatorial places, and they will figure out a ways to operate in these areas. Let me give you a few examples. Bard had partnership with St. Petersburg State University of Russia. They operated a college called Smolny College where students receive dual degrees, uh, one from Bard College and one from St. Petersburg State University. A few years ago, uh, Bard was kicked out of Russia, unsurprisingly, by Putin, yeah. describing Bard as an undesirable organization. And Bard also has partnerships with American University of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan, right, where students receive dual degrees as well. Uh, they, they operate uh, in partnership with Elkhoz University in East Jerusalem, where students receive dual degrees. Again, like these are not, you know, your typical easy to operate places where you can find safe haven, right? A very challenging. And in 2012, around 1012, I would say, 10 to 12, 2010 to 12, Bard was exploring possibility to establish a branch campus in Burma. Burma was just opening up, still very dictatorial as it is now. You know, we were still only, we're just coming up, we're just opening up, really opening up. 2010 is just opening up. Remember from 2010 to 2015, and from 2015 to 2025, we still have 25% of the parliamentarian seats reserved for the military, 
right, reserved, right, no, not contested, reserved for the military. And so it's still uh, quite a, a pseudo pseudo dictatorial military, a militarized country. And even then, Bard was thinking of operating a branch campus inside the country to offer liberal arts education to improve uh, to to uh, promote critical thinking amongst citizens of Burma, and you know uh, Bard has historically educated a lot of Burmese people on their campus, and so while I was doing my PhD at Yale from 2010 to 2000 uh, 2009 to 2014-15, Bard asked if I wanted to come back after my PhD in 2014-15 to be a professor of chemistry at their planned college. And I agreed. I was elated. I was so happy because I would get a job immediately after my PhD. I was super happy. But then in 2012, they said that it was not going to happen. Maybe, you know, it was uh, it was a bit untimely in terms of, you know, the country is just opening up and there were no regulatory framework to, to at all to, to be able to operate, right? So, but then I didn't want to give up you know, after I finished my PhD in 2014. So I was like, oh, you know, I'll, I'll come back to Burma to see what's, you know, what's there that I can do. So I, um, you know, taught in a, in a nonprofit school for two years. Then I started my own uh, initiative, Parmi Institute. And then Bard was very, again, happy to partner with me to reinitiate the project. It's a big step. How, how, did, it, how did it feel for you being back home? after that experience in, in the U.S. and the sort of freedom you'd enjoyed to, to return? You know, the thing is, I've never thought of um, what freedom I would lose or what kind of a living standard or whatever like I would lose. I, those were not the things that I thought about or that I had in mind. All I wanted to do was um, maybe this is shaped by my father's values as well as a bard's values of civic engagement uh, you know, civic responsibility. But my father has also shaped me to be who I am in that he's always asking me to think about what I can do for the country. And, and so, you know, right after my PhD, actually, even before I finished my PhD, I knew, uh, I'll take us back to grade 10, right? My biology teacher once asked me, John Wooden, what do you want to become when you grow up? And I said, well, I don't know what I will become, but I like to empower people. I like to help the country. I like to be part of that. So that's what I said. But I, I, I also told her, however, before I could become such a high impact person, I have to empower myself. So I will educate myself to the highest level. And after that, I'll go back. So when I went to Bard, you know, I know that I'll go for PhD. And then after PhD, I'll go back to Burma in what, whatever ways that I could do in Burma. So uh, it has never been a question of like whether I'll lose the, you know, the, the, the style of living that I will have or, you know, things like that. It, it, those were never part of my equation. I've always wanted to go back. And so, in fact, uh, two weeks after I defended my dissertation, I went back to Burma. We met, I'm just thinking when we met, it must have been 2018. And I I remember so so we were we were working on really sort of shaping your your fundraising because that was seen as you know the, the next step and you you'd built this board and you'd built an incredible network uh, you'd navigated really difficult political economy 
and and I, I remember coming over and, and there was this real sense of, of optimism about the future for for the country for Parami University as well and we we had some conversations about fundraising and we sort of yeah shaped that and that was that that was a that felt uh exciting and and then you went out and and did this amazing because you know the resources you needed to 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 build the university how did you go about the fundraising how what 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 made you feel that it was possible to to raise the funding you needed uh and and how did you go about that yeah well so you know sometimes um it's funny like if you actually had known how difficult it would be you wouldn't have started it <laughs> so i mean like uh, truthfully i was a bit naive maybe you know like i was like oh, i'll just do it you know um i, I have a one way ticket and i'll just fly that's all you know like i i didn't have backup plan b plan c options and things like that i'll just like make it i'll make it happen and it was very challenging you know first of all we didn't have any kind of we still don't have any kind of like you know regulatory framework at all right from 2015 to 2020 uh there were some policy progress right uh regulatory progress and this is in terms of charity law absolutely charity law charity law higher education law so there's no cuz there's no charity law in Myanmar exactly charity law higher education law every, i mean like all laws right and only in 2020 july 2020 right uh the ministry of planning finance industry released it's not really a law they it, it's a directive saying you know like they will start recognizing charitable uh organizations like charitable status that was in late 2020 and organizations wouldn't be able to start applying for it until October of 2020, right? And then remember, we had the coup in, in February 2021. So it's like uh, three months later, we just had the coup. So, you know, uh, not it's much. A small window. Uh, but but Parami was able to secure the charitable status even after that, you know, within that those three months. Uh, we applied immediately and then we had to wait for like a year and a half to, to get that charitable status. But yeah, in terms of the law itself, you know, charitable uh, recognition, nothing like that. When we fundraised in early 2020, there was no law, charity law at, at all, right? So we were just like, you know, like doing this and then, you know, like, you know, like um, it was, I think, I think a lot of the wealthy individuals um, that I have uh, recruited or I have like, you know, cultivated were not really motivated by you know, tax incentives or anything like that. They were really, they were all with us in terms of how we want to move this country forward. They know that we need visionary, responsible, competent leaders. Those are next generation leaders who can have a conversation at a global platform, peer to peer with world leaders. And they know that they need to, they need to be part of the movement to create these individuals. So they became part of it. But there were a lot of challenges to get to that point because in Burma, you know, a lot of, I mean, like probably everywhere as well, but particularly significant in Burma is that I would say 99% of the donations in Burma actually go to religious purposes. 
right? Not to schools, not to other charitable activities much, but only to religious purposes. People would donate like gold rings and gold necklaces and everything, gold diamonds and rubies, all of it are to pagodas, you know, temples, uh, crazy. And they would just bury them in there and things like that. And, you know, that's what they would do. And what was the motivation behind that? Because I remember having that really interesting conversation about what, why people donate to temples and religious organizations. Yeah. Well, both ways, I guess, like, um, you know, maybe it's, it's you know, that there is this social uh, recognition that they like to get, you know, as there is a term in Burmese called payadaka um, or thangadaka, uh, meaning, you know, you are the, the, uh, the patrons of the Buddha, something like that. And you want to be part of that club kind of thing. So you donate a lot of money. But also, you know, there is this interest to gain karma, good karma, right? That uh, if you donate to these uh, great causes, you will generate a lot of good karma. And, and, and so there is that. But I believe that the, this, this uh, you know, they, they, they were definitely this generation of wealthy people from like 30 to 45 years old, that age, right? They, they become millionaires and all, all that. And they were, they have a different mindset. I mean, they, they, their parents are still like very much like religion pro, right? Uh, pro religion, donating only to religion. But these people from 30 to 45 years old have like, oh, you know, we see that the country also needs these areas in, in improvement. Right. So why don't we channel the resources into these areas as well? And this is where we click. And I can have a conversation with that segment of wealthy individual donors in Burma. It's a phenomenal achievement to raise five million dollars in Burma. It's hard enough raising five million dollars in the US, but raising five million dollars in Burma and really without charity law with an environment that's so against or, or sort of doesn't really understand or, or promote or help in any way. How long did it take you to raise that money? Where, what sorts of people, I mean, you've explained, described some of them, but you know, where is their wealth coming from and, and, and how did you, how did you approach them and how long did it take? Right. Right. So a lot of uh, donor cultivation takes, I would say three, four years for sure. You know, with these, individuals high network individuals i i mean like that's how that's why we started parami institute in 2017 you know well early before we started really you know closing in and um, you know making actual returns from them in 2020 and it took three years to cultivate and i would say uh all the donors that i have engaged or within those like segments you know age segments of 30 to 45 not more than 50 for sure those those individuals yeah and you know on top of it like uh, of course uh, there are also other challenges of like the higher education sector is mostly um, looked at as as the government sector right this is where you don't go in and do anything like you just let the government do that and which is i guess like um typical i would say a lot also in europe as well where higher education is almost the the, the field of the government but i would say in this field in Burma, at least, I would say, you know, Burma has uh, historical, socioeconomical, ethnic features, 
right? That call for not just a very centralized, you know, top-down approach, but really from like private citizens approach, right? Uh, because these people have their own identities, their, their languages, their, their value system. Our country has about 135 officially recognized ethnic groups and all that. So it's it's a very diverse country. And, and so in that, in that sense, if you look at the U.S. model of 50 states with the different laws and different, you know, structures, it's more synonymous in that way. Yeah, interesting. Because one of the other principles and values behind Parami is is around equity and access for everyone. So traditionally, education's only been open to certain groups. And I, rem- I remember your sort of aim was for representation from every area. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how have you managed to achieve that? Yeah, within uh, Parami, even now, yes, we have uh, public universities in Burma do offer, I would say, okay, so equitable education when it comes to money. So public higher education institutions are pretty good at, even though it's of really questionable quality, uh, pretty good at uh, opening up doors for all students, regardless of whether they're wealthy or poor, right? So that's fine. But then they have problems when it comes to ethnic representation. They are several ethnic minorities that are not officially recognized by the government. And if you turn out to be in those groups and you are not, you have very limited mobility uh, within the country. So you cannot go to this university or that university, or in fact, you cannot study at all because if you're not, you know, part of that ethnic group or a citizen of the country, then you're not allowed to study in these uh, universities. Uh, So that's that. But when it comes to private universities in Burma, uh, I mean, like we call them private universities, but then I typically say they're all glorified tuition centers uh, because uh, they don't award, these are private universities actually don't award their own degrees. They're not allowed to award their own degrees. They partner with the UK universities, which award the degrees through these teaching institutions in Burma. So private universities, for-profit universities are particularly good at opening up access to a variety of students Ethnic, you know, doesn't matter as long as you are wealthy, right? So within Parami, we particularly, we focus on both. Whether you are rich or poor, doesn't matter. What ethnic group you are, it doesn't matter. We actively promote diversity in both areas. You know, every part of what Parami does from the critical thinking through to accessing education is is deeply challenging in the current political economy. Mm-hmm. How, how have you navigated getting Parami to this point because you've had to walk a tightrope over the last decades. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say, yeah, I, I guess like there are different types of challenges. Um, before the coup, it was a different type of challenge. There were a different sort of challenges, I would say. But then after the coup, it was a different sort of challenges. Uh, before the coup, it was really about like, you know, there were like lack of regulatory frameworks. And so those were big challenges, you know, the philanthropic mindset within the country, those were challenges. You know, I was very young. I was still only 27 years old when I went back to Burma. And when I started Parmi, I was uh, 29, 28, 29. Yeah, 29 years old. So I was still kind of like regarded as like a young guy. Oh, you, you want to set up a university? What are you thinking? Kind of 
um, you know, look. But I was able to navigate because I, I, I actually do a lot of my homework to, to be able to, you know, navigate the landscape there, to be able to have a serious conversation with the policymakers, uh, parliamentarians, um, and, you know, regulatory regulators, though they're just starting up as well. So I was able to manage all of that. But those were the challenges that we had before. But after the coup, because of the atrocious uh, nature of the military regime, they could just arrest anyone uh, within the country, you know, even our students. So we just have to be very politically sensitive in terms of what we can and we cannot do, what we can let our students go through so as not to endanger them and all that. So that's a different set of challenges, right? What we say on Facebook, what we say on website, what we say uh, in the public arena, we all have to be very careful. And your and the staff that are that are in country, how how do they manage that? Yeah, so they're all working from home. They don't have to come to office at all. Uh, we're still, you know, kind of like during a uh, COVID era right now. So they all work from home. Some of the uh, staff are based in Thailand, uh, Thai Burma border. Yeah, just everywhere throughout the country. Um, so yeah, because because we don't have a fixed location right now within Yangon where we operate out of, right? That really uh, decentralizes how we operate. And, and so it really uh, significantly reduces the risk. It's, a, it's an incredible flex and, and pivot. You, you started the build because you'd raised the cash and started to build the university, right? What stage did that get to? Yeah, we actually finished drawing out all the, you know, um, uh, the architectural master plan, detail of uh, civil and engineering, all the, you know, like engineering works that we have done, all of it, quantity survey, everything. And we're, we're just about to release uh, tender documents for, you know, construction companies that that was, uh, we're supposed to release them in mid-February 2021. And uh, on February 1st, 2021, we had the military coup. So we had to postpone everything, really figure out, okay, what are we going to do with all the money? Uh, what are we going to do with, um, you know, all these pledges? And then my, yeah, and then, you know, a lot of family problems, family issues as well. My father got sick in the middle of February with COVID. My mother got sick as well. You know, the country was uh, in short of actual cash because everyone was just going to, to banks to withdraw cash. And so, you know, all, you know, services in, in, inside the country can only be paid with cash. No, you know, electronic transfers accepted anymore. So, yeah, uh, it was, a, it was a quite a messy time inside the country. And within all of those logistics, and, and how did you, and the challenges that you're that the donors are facing as well in terms of their restrictions on their businesses, etc. How did you take them along with you and keep them engaged? Are they still engaged? Are they were they able to donate? Were the pledges realized? Yeah, uh, many of them were still engaged. Uh, of course, we had to uh, since some of the donations are restricted for buildings. We just said, okay, look, uh, we cannot accept these donations anymore uh, because. You know, uh, these are supposed to go for buildings and now we cannot build the buildings anymore. So uh, whether they, I, either they uh, repurpose uh, the donation to academic programming in this online format or temporarily pause their transfer right now. So that's where we are at the moment. 
So you have sort of a, a series of, of donors who are for the capital for the for the building on pause, and you have others who have yes re allowed you to repurpose those donations and and have invested in the online yes. model yes. And what sort of proportion are on pause and what proportion came with you to, to the new model? I would say 40% of them have been repurposed. 60% have been kind of like postponed or like on pause. And, and what, I guess, what's your, what's your hope? And, you know, so much of it is beyond your control. Right. Um, what are your hopes and fears? And does, does the ambition do you still have that ambition to have the building or, or has, has that changed? But what are your hopes and fears, I guess, for the next sort of five, 10 years? Yeah, I guess like it's, it's really intertwined with uh, the country's uh, political situation, right? Uh, most of it is really beyond, almost all of it is beyond my control. But, you know, if the country goes back to, to a democratic government, right? Uh, we would like to rebuild the residential campus again, of course. That would be our goal. Uh, right now, our students need to be educated, uh, whatever mode that we can educate them in. Uh, the military government, the military regime is particularly interested in isolating the students, putting them in the dark. That's what they like to do, but we must not allow that to happen. Are you still fundraising now? Are you still... Is that a part of your role? Yes. Uh, still, as as the president of the university, and yes, absolutely. And how how are you doing it now? This is a very important question because right now Parami is registered in Washington D.C. We are just starting our undergraduate programs, and then so my first year, 2022, 2023, I focus a lot on making sure that. Parami is in compliance with everything that we need it to be. So I am quite directly involved in implementation of a lot of programs, right? As well as, well, it's, it's really setting the culture of the institution in the first year. And my major responsibilities of fundraising are going to really pick up near the end of this fiscal year, which is end of June, 2023. So I will have to start to pick up fundraising again now that one academic year, you know, end of uh, uh, is going to end in May 2023. And you said that fundraising has, uh, you, you went into it sort of naively, not really, you know, that one way ticket you said, um, and, and surprised at how much time and effort it took. <laughs> what would you say to somebody who was, who, who had a, a vision, an idea, a passion that they wanted to turn into reality and required funding to do it? What sort of advice would you would you give them? Well, I would say, you know, they should really focus on the passion and draw energy and inspiration from that passion rather than, you know, being afraid constantly to, to be able to raise funds. Because I believe that if you have the passion, of course, you have to do your homework as well. I mean, you can have the passion, but if you actually don't do work and just wishing, that's not going to work, right? So you need to have the drive. You need to have the passion, but you also actually have to do homework. When I say homework, you have to read up on uh, what motivates donors to give, right? What incentives that they have, uh, what motivations, uh, what are the strategies that you will have to use uh, in a very unique context that you're operating, right? And what are 
the challenges that you're going to be facing and how you're going to address them. You have to do all that homework first, right? And prepare yourself and constantly uh, hone your skills. But rather than just fixated by this fear of not being able to raise funds, draw your inspiration from your passion. That's really good advice. I think it's that, that solid foundation to build to build on. You, you touched there about sort of unique context. And I, I think it's um, your sort of fundraising journey is, is, is unique, uh, has unique challenges. But I think that's probably true of everybody's fundraising yes. journey, right? It's, yes. um, it, it's, it's not putting too much weight on other people's experience, but sort of bringing it into yourself. What do you want to do? What do, what do you want to achieve? And, and who are the people you sort of gather around you? Because I remember you having, when we, when we were doing our, our sessions about guiding, fundraising and planning the next steps just before you went out and, and did the fundraising, you had this really passionate group of people who wanted the same things. Your values were aligned, your ambitions were aligned, and it felt like an exciting moment. How important is it to gather sort of well, wealthy, well-connected people who have the same passion as you around you? How how did you do that? And- yeah, it's it's really everything, and that's really part of the homework that I, you know, one has to do, right? And you know, before you go out and build, or before you go out to be able to connect with high network individual donors, you have to have middle people connectors everywhere, and you build that sphere of you know high potential connectors very closely around you, whom you can inspire, whom whom you can convince to to be on board with you uh, throughout you know the journey so I was able to do that and and again like these people are those who are you know who are supposed to go out and influence and inspire people that are between 30 30 to you know 45 50 right but then the connectors are those who are like 25 to 35 right that age range. And then they are connected to the to the to to the actual high network individual donors. And and you did a great job, I think, of of inspiring those people. And and I remember sort of the conversations about about how excited deeply they they felt. But it it feels like often when you gather a group of sort of wealthy, connected, passionate people, and they are ex- inspired, funding is just one of the things. They can deliver, right? That's yes. one of the things that comes downstream from having that group of engaged people. What what other things, in what other ways did this group help Parami University become what it is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like these connectors, I guess like the connectors, isn't it? They, they connect me with uh, high network individual donors, but then they also, you know, challenge me to think outside of the box uh, in my strategies, right? Not not just for fundraising, even in implementation of the programs. You know, I, I am someone who doesn't like to go out much. Go out as in like go out and be like well known, and you know, like I don't like to do that. Uh, that's not who I am. I don't want to, you know, be on Facebook too much either. In in Burma, that's that's everything. But you know, they are the ones who will be like, you know, Kuchomoton, you need to be out there. You need to be promoting yourself. You need to be making yourself more famous. Uh, you need to be talking more about yourself uh, or you need to get other people to be talking more about yourself publicly and all these things, you know, like it has to be viral and all these, I mean, like all these, you know, like suggestions helped me a lot. And then they themselves became part of that movement 
to make Parmi well known as well. And how how did that feel? Because I, I guess being challenged and and when you open when you open your idea and your project to to, to the involvement and engagement of others, inevitably you lose an element of control. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what offsets that? What, you know, losing the. I I I. I'm never afraid of losing control. I, I don't. Yeah, I, I'm never afraid of losing control. I'm I'm afraid of not getting things done. <laughs> uh, you know, like my 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 mentality is that even if it is done badly, at least it's done. We can learn the lesson from it and then improve. Uh, what I'm afraid is it's getting like not done because uh, nobody cares about it and. Nobody has done it, right? So I'm not. I'm not afraid of losing control. I'm, I'm. I'm completely okay. If they challenge me and if they like think about, okay, Kuchimoto, why don't you think about trying this out? And I'll be like, okay, let's just try this out because I may have a particular opinion, but you know, you challenge me and I think that it's a great idea. So we try it out together. If it fails, well, we learn the lesson and then we'll improve. You know, uh, rather than not trying it out and not doing anything and not going anywhere. Uh, I think that that that's that's that would be the greatest fear. Yeah, mate, yeah, and I, I think it's it's such a that's a fantastic lesson for for people to hear uh, around the sort of not being afraid to lose control. I think inevitably, when if you want your idea to become to be realised, you you need all of these people around you. But and part of that is sharing and 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 helping them to to own it as well, because people don't feel passionate about things that they're not deeply involved with. There's a sort of you know, very clear link between those two things. Absolutely. You know, I, I ha- I'm having these these conversations, and there are you know common features. But I think this sort of grit and determination of which you are exemplar is is a real feature of people who are delivering and getting funding for these incredible projects. Would you agree? You know, tell me about yeah. your determination, your grit. What, yeah. what fuels it? You know, I in my family, I don't describe myself as the most intelligent, the, the smartest person in my family. I would consider my brother, you know, like uh, <laughs> I think there, there are different types of intelligence, I would say. Right. Uh, and, you know, I'm yeah, academically, in, maybe intellectually smart and all that. But my my eldest brother and my sister and, you know, like they they are smart. Other in other ways, and and you know, like sometimes I would be like, you know, my eldest brother is actually smarter than I am. You know, like when we have a conversation, he gets some things. You know, he gets some things so, so quickly, and I'm like, how did you get that, right? So so I know that, but but what I am really good at is a perseverance. I am like, if I have my heart set on it, I'll get it done until it's done, right? So that's that's who I am, and you know, like you know, like you are. You know, I mean, I guess like this is something that you will see in typical PhD pursuers, right? I mean, like you, you know, sometimes uh, when you do it, when you do a PhD, you'll be like, who in the whole wide world cares about your project, your tiny project, right? Maybe like one out of a million people may have heard of the term or the a title of your project, or maybe, maybe, maybe it's like one out of a million is relevant <laughs> or, or, you know, like, but, but we persevere and we do things even when the, when we know that probably nobody cares about it, you know, uh, we're doing it because we are passionate about it and that's why we do it. Right. 
so for me, like I have that perseverance and, you know, like I, I keep doing it. And I would say here, I, I you know, where I get my energy, uh, I, I'll, I'll have to do it pre-coup and post-coup, right? Pre-coup because it was uh, uh, my motivations were intellectually kind of like flowed, you know? I always reason with myself, you know, I have a privileged life. In, in, you know, like, I mean, I mean not that I, you know, I, I was able to go to like, expensive uh, private international schools in Burma, but at least my my parents, you know, were not too poor, right? So poor that, you know, I was not able to be even in government education schools, right? Uh, so I, I would say I, I was privileged in that sense. And, you know, when I uh, wanted to take English tuition classes, you know, they would like, okay, yeah, you can do that. And, you know, I had the privilege to be able to take these English tuition lessons and all that. So I, I, I believe that I am privileged in that sense. And then so, you know, when I went to board and, you know, through throughout what my father has said about like, okay, you know, contribute back to the society. Mostly it was like intellectual, you know, reasoning. Like I, I've been privileged. I should do that. And that really drove me to be determined. But after my father passed away, it has transcended from that intellectual, you know, motivation to personal motivation, if you know what I mean. My father, my, my dad, I would say, would have been more proud of Parami than I am, you know. I, for me, it was, it was more like intellectual, you know, civic engagement, responsibility, I should do it, I'm doing it. Right. But for my father, it was like, my son is doing it and I'm so proud of him. Right. And he was on the ground driving, you know, in Yangon, throughout Yangon to get, you know, land licenses, you know, things that I really, really hate to deal with in Burma, like bureaucratic stuff, including bribery, like pocket money, tea money, all these crazy things. I hated to do it. And and my father would be like, John don't worry about it. I'll do it. So he would put his heart out doing all these things on the ground that I hated to do. And he was very proud of Parami and all of it. And apart from his own personal satisfaction of being able to help me, being able to help Parami, being able to, in his mind, help contribute to the development of the country that he loves, you know, he didn't take any credit whatsoever. And in February 2021, Two weeks after the coup, my father was diagnosed with COVID and with the, the, the cash flow issues inside the country, you know, not being able to withdraw cash from banks, you know, because of all these limitations of cash availability and, you know, hospitals would not accept the patients unless you give them like, you know, $10,000 cash, something like that. You know, my father was quite late in being admitted to the hospital four days late. And uh, so he was admitted on February 22nd um, and he passed away on February 26th. I was in the same hospital room, you know, because he was COVID and there can only be one family member inside the room. So I was there. I was the only person who was available to, to be with my father. So I was there and I had to watch my father die. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I was like, so this military regime destroyed all our lives really dismantled all the hopes, you know, removed, kind of destroyed all our hopes and, you know, promises and, you know, all the fruits of the younger generation and 
Now we're going back into the dark age, and for what? For whom? You know, for a few hundred of those like military people up in the echelon, you know, and for that we all had to suffer. And now, you know, my father also had to die, right? And all the people inside the country are also suffering, and you know, it became more of a personal mission for me. Like, you know, I need to make Parami happen, right? My father gave life to it, right? And it's not just for me an intellectually reasoned, you know, motivation anymore. It's 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 a personal motivation. My father gave life to it, and I have to make it happen. Please forgive this last interruption from me. If you are an experienced fundraiser based in North America or Europe, and have a deep connection or deep interest in Myanmar or liberal arts and sciences education, and if you've been inspired by Chomo Tun's vision and determination. And if you want to volunteer your time and fundraising skills for free to help make this happen for Parami University, please do get in touch with me at hello at fundraisingradicals.com and we will share your details with the Parami team. And now, back to the final moments of this conversation with Cho Moi Tun. What does Parami mean? It means fulfillment of potential. Yeah, so... Burma has a lot of potential, and the young people of Burma have a lot of potential. They just need the opportunities, and I believe that Parami would be just that. And it feels very much like your work is far from done. No, so still very far, still far. And knowing you and your determination, there's a lot of work to do. But if anyone can do it, it's you. Thank you so much, Shomotun. I really appreciate this and. Um, yeah we really appreciate it and thank you so much for joining me today thank you it's my pleasure some conversations just stand by themselves and really don't need me to add anything else to them this puts my own existence and effort into stark relief i know that my fundraising will always be relatively easy but this also gives me hope that there are thousands of people like Chomotun all over the world dedicating their lives to causes that really deeply matter, even in the face of an overwhelming personal cost. I hope you enjoyed meeting the brilliant, incredible Dr. Chomotun today. If you did enjoy this episode, please do subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you do want to find out more about our work, please do visit fundraisingradicals.com.